Welcome in to Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron, And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up this week, the family of a former University of Pennsylvania student filed a lawsuit against the restaurant chain Panera Bread, alleging the lack of warnings around their caffeinated lemonade, and they say it led to their daughter's death. We're going to look at the marketing and health risks from heavily caffeinated energy drinks. Plus, the United Muslim Islamic Center in South Philadelphia was vandalized last week. The center's president, Qasem Rashad, joins us to explain why he'd welcome the unnamed culprit to share in an open conversation. Later in the hour, Dr. Sarah Brown is a cat behaviorist and a cat person just like me. Mm -hmm. And she's going to join us to discuss her brand new book, The Hidden Language of Cats, How They Have Us at Meow. And we want to hear your cat questions and comments. Send them to studio2 at whyy.org. You can also call us 888-477-9499. But first, Cherry, some breaking news. Yes, our news partner 6ABC is reporting that a SEPTA bus driver has died after being shot in the Germantown section of Philadelphia this morning. Police say the 43-year-old driver was shot six times, was rushed to Einstein Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. Both Fox and CBS3 are reporting that a shooting suspect is now in custody. We do not have more information on the driver at this time, but there will be more to come today. You can Follow along right here on WHYY Radio or log on to WHYY.org. Yes, more details to come on that. It's a topic we've talked about before on the show, Cherry. Safety, particularly around those who um, operate our public transit vessels. Public safety in general is a huge topic right now in Philadelphia, including in the mayor's race. This morning during drive time, Philadelphia mayoral candidates Sherelle Parker and David O had their first and only debate of the general election on KYW News Radio. WHYY's Tom McDonald was there and joins us now live to talk about it. Tom, welcome into Studio 2. Good afternoon. So, Tom, public safety was a big topic. What were the highlights on this issue? Well, basically, Sherelle Parker backing down a little bit from her earlier comments about the bringing in the National Guard. She'd said the National Guard wouldn't necessarily be involved in security and safety mission. They could be involved in other things. Uh, Any tool in government that is misused and or abused gives the public just cause to not trust. That's why community policing is so essential. Officers walking the beat, riding the bike, getting to know the communities they sworn to protect and serve. They're as guardians and not warriors. Yeah. And that was Sherelle Parker during the mm-hmm. b- debate, Tom. I actually believe she was talking there about stop and frisk, although, like you said, she sort of walked back some comments Mm -hmm. about calling in the National Guard here in Philadelphia. I actually want to play a clip from David O talking about that very topic, about the the National Guard, because he had clearly seized on this. Yes, he did. We have uh, issues in our own city about not properly training our police officers who are brought into dangerous uh, situations. We have to ensure that we now have people who are not even from our city uh, manning our cities with fully automatic weapons. Uh, We certainly don't want them to intimidate and threaten or harm our citizens. And so it seems like this will be definitely a a point of contention between the two candidates here. Are there other uh, major points that that's stood out to you during this morning's debate? One of the things that they differ on greatly is the downtown arena, the 76ers proposal to put a downtown arena. 
David O. said it would be, in his words, the death of Chinatown. Sherelle Parker called it an economic opportunity that would have to be carefully looked at. Now, you've got to remember that these two candidates are sitting in a position where most of the public is Democrat in Philadelphia. They've got a seven to one voter registration edge. And Parker really is the winner before the first vote is even cast. I mean, we still have to go through the process, but there hasn't been a Republican mayor in the city of Philadelphia for decades. There was some points of agreement, right, Tom, I believe, on school resizing, the sort of right-sizing the district, and also wage taxes. Anything else that stood out in terms of agreement or disagreement? You know, the one thing that they did talk about was the year-round school process Mm. and the school process in general. I know, Avi, you know a lot about this topic. Uh, Alan, I should say Alan, said that uh, David O. said that he does not want to see year-round schools, but he also picked up on a Republican thing, which is not something he's normally accustomed to doing. He said he would be for more school choice in Philadelphia, a topic that has riled a lot of people involved in the Philadelphia schools, and he said that he feels that people should have their opportunity to educate the children the way they want to. Interesting. Well, thanks so much for the time, Tom, and joining us to talk about this debate that happened this morning on KYW News Radio. That is WHYY's Tom McDonald giving us the latest. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. And uh, I want to move on over to a story that I really like today, um, Avi, about Philadelphia's Rosa Parks. Philadelphia's of, Rosa Parks. We had a Rosa Parks 100 years before Rosa Parks became Rosa Enlighten Parks. me, please. Yeah. Her name is Caroline LeCount. She received a tombstone on Saturday in the historic Eden Cemetery in Collindale. Why? Well, she was born in 1846, before the end of the Civil War, went to Cheney University, was one of the first African-American women to pass the teaching exam. And at the time, there had been efforts to desegregate the city's uh, streetcar. Streetcar system. Exactly. Yes. They had a streetcar system. Yes, exactly. Yes. And at the time, um, efforts had been successful. And then she, when the segregation continued, she challenged it, just like Rosa Parks, and ended up getting arrested. Okay, so they passed a law mm-hmm. uh, banning segregation on the streetcars. Mm-hmm. And then she said, she, how did she challenge it? She challenged it, but well, she filed a criminal complaint. I should okay. clarify. She filed a criminal, criminal complaint, and she got the conductor fined and arrested. That was the first time any uh, black person had ever done, like, done anything like that. The conductor wasn't trying to follow the law. Exactly, and okay. so she, she challenged him and uh, was successful. So my apologies on getting there. But she had been ejected from the streetcar, and then she challenged it. it. Hence the Rosa Parks comparison. Hence the Rosa Parks comparison, yeah. And by the way, another historical fact Caroline LeCount had been engaged to Octavius V. Cato. Mm. You probably heard of him. There's mm-hmm. a big statue of him around City Hall. And um, he was shot on Election Day, uh, 18 and 1871. Yeah. yeah. And they were never married. But, of course, she lived into the early 1900s. So, yeah, yeah. So, Caroline long LeCount, remember that name, Philadelphia's Rosa Parks. Philadelphia's Rosa Parks. And so now she has an official tombstone in Eden Cemetery, in Eden Cemetery. which is wonderful. And uh, a group of folks raised some money to do that. And now we all have a chance to talk about her and remember her and acknowledge her. And yes, that is really, really yes, important. Yes, yes, yes. want to turn now to our Newsmaker segment today. This week, the parents of former University of Pennsylvania student Sarah Katz filed a lawsuit in Philadelphia against Panera Bread, claiming her death last year was caused by drinking the restaurant's, quote, charged 
lemonade. Katz did have a heart condition, but the suit alleges that Panera failed to adequately warn customers about the risks of the caffeinated drink. Caffeine is in a lot of products mm. these days, with some energy drinks having six times the amount of a typical cup of coffee. So why are companies upping the caffeine content? Who are they marketing to? And is it safe? Jennifer Temple joins us now. She's the director of the Nutrition and Health Research Laboratory at the University at Buffalo. Jennifer, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, thank you for having me. So Jennifer, this case was rather shocking to me. What do you know about this charged lemonade and the amount of caffeine in it? And can you sort of give us a reference point to what it would be comparable to? Sure. So the charged lemonade is a product. I'm not exactly sure when Panera put it on the market, but there's three different flavors of lemonade that have um, caffeine in them. The amount of caffeine is in a, in a medium size is about 260 milligrams, which is equivalent to about two and a half cups of coffee. And then if you get a large size, it's close to 400 milligrams of caffeine, which is about four cups of coffee. Um, so that's sort of a reference in, in terms of coffee. In terms of soda, it would be quite a bit more than soda because a typical soda, a can of soda has about 40 milligrams of caffeine. So this is a large charged lemonade has about nine times the amount that you would find in a can of soda. And how um, common, uh, Jennifer, are medical reactions like this to caffeine? I mean, is is it super, super rare? Do we see it pretty frequently? Can you give us a sense? Sure. These cases are actually really rare, but they tend to uh, draw a lot of media attention. Mm -hmm. So in healthy children and adults, consumption of caffeine at the levels that are contained within these drinks doesn't usually cause any serious reactions. It may cause more mild reactions in children or people with sensitivities. So people might feel jittery or anxious or a little bit nauseous, but we tend to see the extreme and, and fatal reactions to caffeine in people that have underlying cardiac conditions. Sometimes those underlying conditions are not known to the person. I think mm. in this case, it was a known cardiac condition. Yeah. And, and let's talk about what caffeine does to one's body. Um, what exactly does it do when we drink caffeine? And then if you have, I don't know, in this case, um, 10 times the almost 10 times the amount of a normal soda, what that could do having an excessive amount of caffeine? Certainly. So um, caffeine typically acts in the brain to kind of counteract the neurotransmitter that makes us sleepy. So caffeine can make us feel more awake, more alert, can give us more energy. But caffeine in higher doses, it tends to increase our heart rate. It can make us feel jittery, anxious, nauseous. And it has those, those cardiac effects, which can be negative, which in people that have underlying cardiac conditions, those effects can happen at both lower doses of caffeine and they can be more severe, causing uh, fatal cardiac arrest. How is caffeine regulated in this country and how does that compare to other countries? Are, are there limits to the amount of caffeine that can be in a drink? Are there rules around labeling? 
Um, oh, there's there's multiple questions there, so I'll try to answer each <laughs> I one. I gave you a lot. So, Take your time. <laughs> it's totally fine. So in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration limits the amount of caffeine that can be added to beverages. Huh. So uh, it's 71 milligrams per 12 ounces is the limit. But the workaround or the the what is not regulated is energy drinks. Mm. So energy drinks are classified as supplements by the FDA, and therefore there's no limit on the amount of caffeine that can be added to energy drink beverages. Wait, 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 wait. no limit, no limit. There's no, the FDA does not regulate the caffeine content in things that are considered supplements. And and quick follow-up, because a lot of these energy, energy drinks have more than just caffeine. They have yes. taurine, they have other types of herbs that have the same type of effect of caffeine. Is this regulated at all? No, and that's part of why they're considered supplements. So they're considered supplements because they contain they contain vitamins and herbs and things that the companies that produce them say are are beneficial to our health. So they they act as a supplement and they're not acting as a beverage. Um, the other question that you asked was in terms of labeling. Mm. And I will say there are some regulations around energy drink labeling. So when you buy an energy drink, it has to it has to list caffeine in its ingredients. And it has to have a nutrition facts label on it, and it has to list any allergens, but it's not required to list the amount of caffeine. Hmm. Um, I will say that the American Beverage Association recommends that energy drinks do list the amount of caffeine from all sources, but that's not, that's an industry recommendation. That's not a FDA regulation. We have a break coming up in about a minute, Jennifer, Um, but why are we seeing such a proliferation or seemingly seeing such a proliferation in these energy infused beverages that aren't coffee or tea? What are the companies seeing? What's the opportunity they're taking advantage of? Yeah, so energy drinks are the fastest growing segment of the beverage market. And our research that we've done on kids suggests that when you add caffeine to sugar-sweetened beverages, it makes kids like those drinks more Mm -hmm. and it makes kids want those drinks more, even if they can't tell you why. So the kids in our study didn't know that caffeine was in the drinks. They could just say, I I want this drink more. I like this drink more. And, And the companies know that and they know that um, when they add the caffeine to these beverages, that it makes people buy them more clearly because it, it's working in terms of, of marketing and sales. And the the people that they're marketing to, they tend to market to adolescents and young adults. The marketing is very masculine. It's very um, skewed toward kind of risky behavior, risk-taking, mm. adventure, things like that. And so I think they do a good job of marketing yeah. to the people that are looking for that kind right. of more than a drink. I want something that's going to gonna make me feel really good. Or right. Yeah, really and Jennifer. Sorry, we have a quick break, Jennifer. We're going to get right back to you. That's Jennifer Temple at the University at Buffalo talking about caffeine and drinks. More to come on Studio 2. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back into Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron, alongside my co-host, Cherry Gregg, and we're talking about caffeine-laden energy drinks with University at Buffalo professor and researcher, Jennifer Temple. Welcome back, Jennifer. 
Thank you. And Jennifer, before the break, you were talking about how these drink companies, these energy drink companies try to attract kids by throwing caffeine into their drinks. Um, I want to talk about how does caffeine impact kids? Their bodies are smaller. How do Mm -hmm. they metabolize caffeine? What's the impact on their smaller systems? And is, are, are there any age restrictions here? That's a lot of questions there, but <laughs> that's a it good all question. wraps up so, about kids. Okay, that's a great question. And that's really in my wheelhouse because the work I've done has been in children and adolescents related to caffeine use. But I will, I will say that energy drink companies are not allowed to advertise to children younger than age 12. So their their marketing is really toward those older adolescents and young adults. So they're they're really not targeting young children. Um, but in terms of the effects on children, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about children being smaller. So if we think about about how we dose medications, a lot of times we dose medications relative to body weight. So if a kid is going to drink, let's say 200 milligrams of, of caffeine, it's going to affect their bodies more because they, they're just smaller than mm-hmm. it would an adult that weighs 150 pounds. The other thing about caffeine that makes it um, maybe more problematic for use in children is that when we use adults, a lot of adults consume caffeine. It's relatively ubiquitous and adult consumption tends to be fairly regular. So when you consume caffeine on a regular basis, you build up what's called a tolerance to caffeine. So you become less sensitive to the effects of it. Maybe you need an extra cup of coffee after a while, but kids consume caffeine infrequently. So they don't develop that tolerance. So if they have a high dose of caffeine, um, maybe one that they haven't ever had before, they are more likely than an adult to have a negative response to it just because their body's not accustomed to that regular caffeine consumption. Mm. Jennifer, the other reason, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say one more thing. The other reason why we're particularly concerned about caffeine use in kids is because, because of its impacts on sleep. Mm-hmm. So one of the main things that caffeine does is it, it impairs sleep quality, it impairs um, sleep duration. And if kids consume caffeine too close to bedtime, it can be disruptive of their sleep, which can create problems for academic performance, for mental health, for physical health, um, in particular at times when when they need a lot of sleep, like when they're when they're young and they're growing. Real quick, Jennifer, just about 45 seconds left. Um, We talked about what the laws are around caffeine. Mm -hmm. What should the laws be, in your opinion? Uh, that's a good question. I would like to see more regulation around the sales of energy drinks. I would like to see them restricted um, so that sales, you couldn't sell energy drinks to children under the age of 18. There's other countries that have policies like that. Um, I would like to see restrictions on the amount of caffeine that can be contained within these drinks. Again, I know that's there's a lot of steps because of because they're not considered drinks, but um, the consumers view them as drinks. They're sold right alongside drinks. And I think people could unintentionally consume a large amount of caffeine because they assume that they're drinks or or maybe they assume that there are that they're safe, that there's limits to to how much caffeine could be put in them. And so I would like to see more regulation. I know last summer when Prime Energy Drink came on the market, there was a push in the Senate. Chuck Schumer was pushing for the FDA to reconsider some regulations around Mm -hmm. energy drinks. So there may be some movement. Every time there's a a high-profile case like this, it renews discussion Mm. about whether we should regulate energy drinks. 
Yeah, and we'll leave the conversation there. Um, That is Jennifer Temple, Director of the Nutrition and Health Research Laboratory at the University at Buffalo. Jennifer, very informative, learned a lot from this discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on Studio 2 today. Thank you for having me. Going to turn now to our neighbors in South Philadelphia, where the United Muslim Islamic Center was recently the target of vandalism. Doors and windows at the mosque were covered in white graffiti spelling out Islamophobic and anti-Islam messages. This happened, of course, as incidents of hatred and violence against Muslim and Jewish people have increased around the world during the Israel-Gaza conflict. Qasem Rashad, Amir at the United Muslim Islamic Center, joins us now to address the incident, but also share what the community's response has been like and what he wants to see happen next. Qasem Rashad, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you, and <clears throat> assalamu alaikum to you and your listening audience. Um, I'm really grateful yeah. and honored to be invited here. Uh, I consider WHYY one of the more pure forms of news media. <laughs> uh, I listen often, although because it's been Red October, I have been on hiatus. <laughs> You're excused. <laughs> Understood. But I'm back. Yes. <laughs> Thank yes, you yes, so yes. much, sir. So I, I want to jump right in and talk about Um, this vandalism that happened at your mosque, what was your first reaction and what was the community response? Yeah, it's it's been very disturbing. Mm -hmm. Um, It actually happened early Thursday morning on the 19th, uh, which was the day before Jumu'ah, the day before our um, day of prayer. And so, you know, typically we're there, you know, getting prepared for that. And so to come to the mosque and to find that type of uh, greeting or that type of uh, graffiti all over the building mm-hmm. was very disturbing. Um, not too coincidental, we thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were kind of concerned about what this actually meant for us and what did it portend for the future. So when you decided what to do in the aftermath, I'm imagining there's a couple paths, which is mm-hmm. we could sort of deal with this quietly mm-hmm. right. or we can tell people that this happened. You chose the latter path. Why? Well, the first course of action was to notify um, the Philadelphia police. Mm-hmm. Um, District 17 is right down the street, two blocks, which yeah. was amazing. But the video footage um, revealed that the person did the graffiti at about 3.15 a.m. Mm. So I can imagine it was probably you know, a laid back uh, time. So we felt that we should ring the bell, so to speak, and put the alarm out there. In, in South Philly, particularly, there are about, there's exactly four uh, mosques. Mm-hmm. Um, we have United Muslim Masjid at 15th and Christian. Then there's United Muslim Islamic Center at 1251 Point Breeze. Uh, then there's uh, Masjid Bin Bass down four, five, about five blocks down on 17th yeah. Street. And then there's Masjid Al Falah on 17th Street as well, which is frequented by the Indonesian community. Mm. Yeah. So we felt that this would, you know, put our neighbors on alert mm-hmm. and that this would signify to whoever did it or whoever is thinking about copycatting it mm-hmm. that we're going to be vigilant about this. Mm. Now, the world has been focused in on Israel and Gaza and this battle, this war that is going on, did you feel like this was connected or did you just feel like this is a time when people are just really, really sensitive? Well, initially, we definitely did not feel as though it was a very, it was coincidental. Mm -hmm. You know, we felt in some way because of the, uh, the atmosphere Mm -hmm. globally, 
uh, in Philadelphia and in Gaza, that this had a connection to that. And we still believe that to some degree or some extent. Uh, we have learned uh, or discovered who the individual is, but oh. they're not necessarily connected to a hate group or anti-Islamic group. Um, from what we've been able to gather, that they may have some uh, mental challenges, if mm -hmm. you will. Yeah. But still, uh, we also know that these types of acts often inspire people yeah. to do copycats things. Mm -hmm. You said that you're willing to sit down and have a conversation with this person, but you also mentioned that some of the messages were sort of incoherent. Um, they were hateful, but sort of hard to parse. What do you think could come from that conversation, you know, realistically? Well, curiosity, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> interested in what was in this person's state of mind, what was in their heart. Uh, often you've probably heard this expression that Islam is peace or Islam is a religion of peace. It's not a cliche. Yeah. Um, we're not pacifists, but at the same time, we're compassionate people. Mm -hmm. we're a, it's a religion of compassion. And so I would like to see, you know, have a dis discussion with them or anyone who has uh, negative uh, feelings, vibes, or misunderstandings about Islam so that we could educate them about the religion and educate them about Muslims. Yeah, and I got to say, uh, I've covered some of the Muslim community here in Philadelphia for years. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember there was a time when Muslim leaders would not necessarily speak out about things, but that has changed. Um, and there has been public statements like what you all made. What has, has there been this shift in tactic? Am I just making this up or just seeing it? Has there been a shift in tactics here as far as becoming more public? And if so, why? Right, I think that the paradigm of Islam has changed and shifted you know, particularly in South Philly, you can't throw a stone without hitting a Muslim. Mm -hmm. It's just that densely populated uh, with Muslims. And so now we're encountering different Muslims from diversified backgrounds. Uh, Philadelphia is uniquely probably the most uh, dominated or the bit, the largest group of Muslims are African-Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, but so with that comes with the whole civil rights movement and understanding of civil rights. So. A lot of African-American imams have empowered other imams to say, look, this is how we do things. This is how we did things in the 60s and in the 70s. Mm. And so we're no longer kind of the, the smaller group that's laid back. I think the, the, the census have determined that there are about 350,000 mm -hmm. Muslims in the, in the state. And so we have a specific agenda that will uh, kind of move our agendas forward. We're voting people. We're more, we're voting, we're more, uh, registered to vote, I think there's been a, a, a move by uh, CARE and uh, Engage to have a million Muslim voters drive, which was a success. And so now Muslims are becoming more civic-minded, more mm -hmm. engaged, and standing up for their rights. And you guys got Eid, made uh, an official holiday, right. and that was a big deal. A um, yeah. lot of advocacy coming mm -hmm. out of the Muslim community. So what are the next steps? I mean, you, you identified who this person was that did the vandalism. What's the next step? Well, we, we definitely would like to see them brought to justice. Um, and the police are doing their job. Uh, they, the 17th District, I can't say enough about them. They have been a community partner. Uh, the community has been a partner. If you come out to uh, United Muslim uh, Islamic Center at 1251 Point Breeze, we'll be feeding people on Saturday. Uh, we, we had a, pro a program where we fed people with dignity, where we had tables and umbrellas, and you could sit out, and the Muslims would feed you. Mm -hmm. Literacy courses, uh, outreach programs for youth, and so on and so forth. 
So um, what we plan to do is to do more in the community and to solidify our relationship and our partnership with the community, but the community loves us, and to continue to solidify our relationship with the 17th District. We have less than a minute left, maybe about 30 seconds. I'm just curious if you've ever had a conversation with an Islamophobic person face-to-face and had a chance to try to change their mind, and if so, what happened? No, I've not had uh, a conversation with an Islamophobic person because that would infer that this is a person who more or less hates the religion. Mm -hmm. I have had a lot of uh, conversations with Muslims or with people who do not understand Islam. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with my mom when I I took my Shahada. And she was like, wow, it's done a lot for you. You know, why don't you get your brothers involved? Hmm. And I said, well, mom, if you became a Muslim, they would love to probably follow you (laughs) and become involved. So we call it Dawah, and that is what is called the call to Islam. So I've had plenty of conversations are they successful conversations often? I think they're successful at least enlightening people and educating people about Islam. Mm-hmm. Have I had conversations where people became Muslim as a result of my conversation? We say Allahu Alam. Only God knows. Only God knows. <laughs> God <laughs> Thank knows. you so much. That is uh, Qasem Rashad. Uh, Amir at the United Muslim Islamic Center in South Philadelphia. We really appreciate the time. Thank of you course, for we me. are sorry for what happened to your mosque, Absolutely. and we hope that you do find justice. Okay, thank you again. Thank you for being here. Coming up next, The Hidden Language of Cats. A new book investigates what our cats are trying to tell us. You can call in. The number is 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. And emails are already coming in, so thank you. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolf, Ben Arendt. This segment coming up is for the cat people. Meow. But I'll say, <laughs> even if you're not a cat person, I think you will find something mm-hmm. very fascinating what we're about to talk about. This species is a really interesting species, Cherry Gregg, and for decades, Sarah Brown has been investigating how cats interact with humans and with each other. She's explored differences in tail signals, ear movements, even the science behind the unique meows we hear mm-hmm. from our pets. Yeah, and I and I just full disclaimer, I'm a dog person, but I still think you. cats we are pretty you. cool. So if you've ever wondered what your cats thinking about or what they're trying to tell you when they run around the room or wake you up in the middle of the night, we're about to get some answers. Dr. Sarah Brown is a cat behaviorist and the author of many books. Our new her newest one came out just a week ago. It's called The Hidden Language of Cats. How They Have Us at Meow. Love the title. Sarah Brown, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And if you listeners have questions or comments about your cat's behavior, you can send them in right now. Email studio2 at whyy.org or call us right now. The number is 888-477-9499. Sarah, I think we first have to understand what the cat is. So when we talk about the domesticated, perhaps not quite mm-hmm. domesticated cat, what does that descend from? Yes, so um, the cat, uh, our domestic cat descends from a very small uh, solitary living wildcat species known as the North African wildcat. And it's thought that our relationship with this little wildcat began around 10,000 years ago in an area known as the Fertile Crescent, where human communities slowly started changing from hunter-gathering to growing crops. And so 
settlements developed and in these new farming communities they began to store their grain and that in turn attracted rodents and these rodents in turn attracted the attentions of of the wildcats uh, that lived around the settlements and they would hang around the grain stores hoping for a mouse or two for dinner and it's thought that the farmers realizing that these wildcats were useful as pest, pest controllers would have tolerated them and over time the wildcats gradually adapted to the constant presence of humans and other wildcats and eventually the braver ones eventually crept into the farmers homes and and that's pretty much how it all began really they sort of self-domesticated themselves and and i read in your book that you talked about cats being domesticated but kind of not really can you talk about this <laughs> this sort of straddle that the cats do as far as being domesticated and tolerating humans but still being able to to be on their own in the wild if necessary Yes, yeah, so they've, they've done a great job of of becoming more domesticated, but somehow retaining that ability to live solitary or social lives according to their circumstances. So they can live in, in colonies, in groups if they need to, and they quite quite as happily live, you know, solitary lives as a, you know, domestic house cat. And so, yeah, I think it's really because, because of their solitary past that they, they keep that that essence, if you like, a bit, a bit. If you compare it to dogs that came from wolves, and they, wolves are much more social, and they came from a social background with social signals. And cats have had to work much harder to learn how to communicate with one another and with people. And so they've probably a little bit behind in the domestication stakes, I think, on their journey than dogs are. So why do they live with us now? And that's a question you get into in the book, Sarah, because. <laughs> This initial relationship was sort of a you scratch my back, I scratch mm-hmm. your back type of thing. It was about, you know, it was about practicality. But now we've all, we all, but a lot of us have cats mm-hmm. in our houses and they're really not serving that function. So so what is the state of play now between in the cat-human relationship? So, yeah, so over time, it was a good question. Over time, cats have become much more important over as um companion animals and that's pretty much the the main role they serve these days and they they do that because we provide them with whatever they need really we we give them a home and food and comfort and company and they do you know they do enjoy our company I think I don't many people say that they are aloof and they don't really need us but but they do they enjoy contact with people and and you can certainly develop a great relationship with your cat if you try hard and if you look at them and watch them and that's why I wrote the book really to try and get people to take a step back and and think about what their cats are seeing and smelling and hearing and work out how best to interact with them. Yeah and before we talk about the the different the lang- the actual language of cats and our our want our uh, need to interpret it we do have a caller who's um, says his cat is making an interesting sound, probably trying to communicate something. Eric is from Germantown. He's on the line. Eric, welcome to Studio Two. What is your question or comment? Yeah, hello. Um, well, recently I, I have a bird bath out my back door in a glass door, and the cat was sitting watching a bird in the bird bath and making a sound that was like a vibrating sound that was bright and um, very much like a bird sound, actually. And uh, I'd never heard him or really any cat make the sound before and 
um, it really seemed like it was looking at this bird and making bird sounds, and it was like a vibrating sound. I spoke to a cat rescue person who said that cats do this and that sometimes that the lower jaw will vibrate, but I had never seen it or heard it. I didn't notice if his jaw was vibrating. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if that's a normal thing, if he was imitating a bird or what that is about. Cat imitates bird. bird. What do you think, Sarah Interesting, Brown? Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a really fascinating behavior. I love that behavior. We call it chittering, chatting, and many cats do it. And it's pretty much always in that situation where they're looking out of a window at something they can't reach, but they'd really like to reach if they could. So a bird or a, or a you know a mouse or something, but usually birds. And um, yes, yeah, it's it's sort of a jaw just as. <laughs> Uh, as the caller described, chattering, chittering, sort of jaw-shaking mm. type. It's very hard to describe, but I could make the noise, but I'd sound quite silly if I did. Um, I wanted to ask. I wanted <laughs> to ask <laughs> Eric to mimic it, but I thought maybe, no. maybe not this show. We'll see. Um, I might as well. Get, we might as well get into more questions now from listeners because they're kind of pouring in, and I want to make sure we serve the people. Um, email from Jamie here. My cat gets wound up when she sees certain neighborhood cats from the window. It makes her run around and attack the nearest human. We don't know what to do. She's very sweet and cuddly the rest of the time. What's your advice for Jamie? Yeah, that's that's a really difficult situation. Um, They don't say whether the cat can ever go out or not, whether it's just an indoor cat, but I'm assuming that that the cat's an indoor cat. And um, we call that redirected aggression. So basically the cat's very frustrated and getting angry at this cat that's potentially on on their territory and and so they just take it out on the nearest thing i think we all do it sometimes um (laughs) um so i think the best way to do that if if it's a if if it's a repeated thing where the cat always walks past the same window then potentially cover up the window with some with a curtain or you know some boarding for a while just so the so your cat can't see it um and just sort of you know remove that that um you know that that problem from yeah. from their life for a bit, and then, or when they're looking at it and they're getting angry, try and redirect that with a toy or something, but perhaps a sort of rod toy that, that you know you can dangle and just get their attention onto something else, into play behavior instead of aggression. Attack the toy, not me, please. Yeah, please do that. And if <laughs> yeah, you're just exactly, yeah. And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Dr. Sarah Brown, a cat behaviorist who is the author of a brand new book called The Hidden Language of Cats, How They Have Us at Meow. If you have cat questions or comments, you can call us. Our number is 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. want to talk about the different ways that, that cats communicate. And one of the big ways is scent. And they, yes. can you tell us what cats they what they're able to glean from scents and also what they're trying to communicate when they use their own scent yes so scent is hugely important for cats um partly because they came from as i said before a solitary ancestor that would have communicated almost solely by scent because they rarely encountered each other on a day-to-day basis so they would leave scent marks you know for another cat to pick up on a later you know on a later basis and so um, even though the cats have developed much more, you know, visible signals for us to see and vocal signals like meowing, they still rely very much on this scent type behavior. And 
examples like scratching where we look at them and we think oh they're scratching a surface and they're just doing it to sharpen their nails but they're actually depositing scent from from the glands between their toes as they scratch mm. um, which is a very important thing for them but we don't even know that they're doing that and also when they rub around you know when you see your cat rub around furniture or rub around the door um, they're leaving a deposit from the glands in their um, in like their marking cheeks. their territory sort look- of thing yeah, just making it all smell like it should do <laughs> for them. Speaking of smell, one way mm-hmm. in which cats announce themselves is by urine spraying. You get into that in the book. Um, uh, yes. And you also have a wonderful piece of advice. <laughs> do not clean up your cat's pee with ammonia. Why? That That's because... Um, cat's urine actually contains ammonia and so do many of our cleaning products so if you clean uh, an area with an ammonia-based cleaning product the cat will come and smell it and think oh it smells of you know another cat's wee and (laughs) so often remark that area mark you know mark over it with another nice spray for you to clear up again later and you can sort of get into a bit of a you know uh, endless conversation in that way with with the cleaning product and the cat urine. No ammonia. So it's better Don't to use something else. Very <laughs> use something special that's designed for clearing it up. Very interesting. Uh, we have an email from Melanie who says we have two sibling kitty sisters who generally get along. They do seem to have a rivalry around me, though. That's Melanie talking. She says, if one wants my attention and I start to give it, the cat seems to first look around and check that the sister isn't nearby or competing for attention. Is that what's happening or am I imagining it? She's trying to see, is there this really this sibling rivalry there? So, yeah, siblings do get quite competitive as time goes on. So, you know, those two cats might have been very close as kittens and then gradually grown apart as they got older um so the best way to deal with that situation is to try and do something with them together as i said before like playing so get a couple of rod toys you know one in each hand and um, play with them both at the same time so they get the idea that you know you are shareable <laughs> in mm. some way and and that they don't have to compete over you or yeah it's an interesting one and by the way, if any of these questions just don't have enough information to provide an answer, that's okay. You're allowed to say that too, because I'm about to well, lob an interesting naturally one. Naturally, I you. want to ask a million questions back, but yes, <laughs> I, I know. Don't. That's the problem with email. <laughs> and by speaking of yes. email, by the way, when we talked about that scent earlier with cats and urine spraying, it is known as P-mail. I'm not making oh, that up. Oh, P-mail. Yes, it's in the book. Um, email from uh, <laughs> Patty who says, my cat drags his toy, brings it to us and cries and get this around eight o'clock every mm. night what is he trying to communicate well it depends what you do with it so i i wonder if perhaps you then play with it and presumably he just wants to have a play session which is what most cats would love at eight o'clock every night because that's a <laughs> classic time for zoomies um so probably just inviting you to play is what i would say and yeah please do play with them because they that's great interaction with your cat great bonding Love it. Our our cat folks are, are really happy today. Lots of emails. And we have another caller as well. Ellen from Hattonfield has a story about her mom's cat. Ellen, you're on Studio 2. Which is story? Oh, I'll make, I'll make this as short as I can. I know cats have an uncanny ability to be a scent, you know, uh, find their owners. But uh, one particular quick story, my mother was in a rehab facility and we br- would bring her cat in every night to see her. One night she got she leapt from my arms 
and had a choice of many hallways. That cat knew to go what hallway to go to, made a right-hand turn into my mother's room, a two-bedroom room, jumped up on my mother's bed, which was right next to the window. It was, it was unbelievable, and it, we find it hard to believe it was a scent-driven, you know, mm. decision. Mm. You know, so it was really interesting. I don't know, and the cat is incredibly loyal to her, so who knows? <laughs> and there, you yeah. talk about it in the book, uh, Sarah Brown. Cats have, well, look, there's a lot of studies, but cats do seem to have some recognition of of certain humans, and they do know their own names, right? And that's something that people can get confused with because mm-hmm. dogs clearly know their own names and respond to that stimulus. Cats might know their names but not always respond in sort of a very obvious way. What do we know about cat intelligence in that way? Yeah, well, th- this is it, I think, with a lot of their behavior is that, is that they are responding quite often to us, but it's just very, very subtle. Right. And we don't always notice. So, for example, like ear movements, which, you know, they could, you know, the studies have shown that, that they've got actually got seven different movements of their ears that they can do in and the two ears move independently they can rotate 180 degrees Mm. and so all this is going on all the time and they can change you know emotionally they they express their emotion in their ears too so the positions change so rapidly that that to the naked eye we're not really observing what what they're trying to communicate Mm. if you like so um, they know they're just, just not showing us time. that yes. they know, I think is often what it comes down to with cats. And or we can't yes, pick up on the yes, signals. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. One of the interesting things was we can't always smell them either because they're because of their, uh, you know, high caliber grooming habits. But I, I wanted, exactly. yeah, and that, that was a very interesting factoid to me. But I wanted to ask you about for the non-cat people, how do you approach a cat without getting bitten or scratched or whatever how should we be approaching cats versus how you would normally approach a dog right great question so yeah so one brilliant study of interactions between cats and humans has shown that though these interactions last a lot longer if you let the cat start it so cats like to lead the you know the conversation Mm. um it's okay to encourage it speak to it and if it looks interested, offer a handout maybe for it to sniff with your fingers curled under and let them approach you and let them sniff your hand as long as they like. Don't don't immediately jump into petting it. Just let it sniff and sniff and sniff for as long as it wants. And then if things seem to go well and it rubs on your hand, then gently stroke its head, you know, pet its head. It's all but about But be patience, really conscious yeah. of where you're petting yeah. yeah, patience, exactly the name of the game. And be conscious of where you're petting it because cats prefer to be stroked around the head and the chin rather than the belly or the tail. Mm. Um, yeah. And as this interaction goes on, keep an eye on, on its reactions. Sometimes they get fed up, you know, a lot quicker than, than you do with the interaction. <laughs> yeah. So if you see the tail going, the flicking, or they just, you know, break away to groom for a while, it might be time to nip nip it in the bud yep. and stop stop interacting so yeah want to talk, talk about one more strategy and I'll, I'll talk about it by bringing in an email from judy who said i cannot underestimate the power of slow mm. blinking toward a scared cat you talk about this in the book <laughs> my new rescue cat would not come near me once i gave him a few slow blinks he crawled in my lap Aww. describe for folks what slow blinks are and why they seem to be so powerful yes it's like magic a slow blink Unfortunately, we're on radio, so it's really hard to describe. <laughs> it so, is kind of what it sounds like. I mean, it, you slowly blink your so, eyes. Yeah, basically, yeah. you do a kind of squint. So 
gently half close your eyes into a squint and then open them again and it's called sort of eye narrowing or eye you know slow blinking and if you do it to a cat uh, often a nervous cat or even your own cat if you've been kind of looking at each other a bit long they will do it back and that's often a, a way of making them feel at ease and often that will lead to an interaction because they'll think oh you know they're not staring at me we've broken up the you know the the long stare and and they they think everything's okay and they'll often come and greet you so yeah slow blinking practice it on your cat is it's so much fun and we have an email from Linda who says I've had several cats during my life but I definitely feel like there are inside and outside cats when searching for a new cat kitten can it be determined which type it is and she wants an indoor cat so she needs advice how does she know whether or not the cat is an indoor cat uh, that's a very good question. I think a lot of it depends on the background of the cat itself. So mm. if it if it's coming, you know, from from cats that have lived outdoors, then I would say that that kitten would probably want to live a indoor outdoor or an outdoor life. Um, whereas if you've this come from a breeder, perhaps where it's been, you know, bred indoors, they'd be very much more used to the indoor environment and not need that that outdoor release that that many cats do. Um, so I would do a lot of background research if it's from a shelter. They'll have a lot of information about where the cat came from or the kitten. Um, and, and obviously my breeder would have the same. So, yeah, just do do lots of homework, I'd say. Hmm. Well, we have a surplus, or perhaps I should say a purplus a of purplus. questions that we cannot get to <laughs> oh, today. Come on, nice. one pun, one pun, guys. <laughs> I'm so sorry we have to leave it there. That is Sarah Brown, cat behaviorist, author of the new book, The Hidden Language of Cats, how they have us at Meow. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio Two. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, and I recommend checking out her Instagram page. Lots of tips on mm-hmm. cat communication. Slow there. blinking is wild. You yes. have to try slow blinking. I do, I do it with CJ. Shout out CJ. Oh, you got to shout out to Kitty. There you go. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Yeah, yeah. this week. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes, Al Banks is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. You can head on over to whyy.org slash studio two for more of our show or download our podcast wherever you get yours. From Studio Two at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. See you next week. Yeah.